0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this Lean Pub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jerry Weinberg. Jerry, I'm sure, needs no introduction for many of the listeners to this podcast, and while it's not possible in a brief introduction to capture even just the highlights of everything he's done, I hope it's enough to say that Jerry is a writer, consultant, teacher, computer scientist, and author of many influential books, including The Psychology of Computer Programming. Introduction to General Systems Thinking, The Secrets of Consulting, and Perfect Software and Other Illusions About Testing, amongst others. Um, Jerry's also a novelist, and you can check out his books on LeanPub at leanpub.com u jerryweinberg slash Jerry Weinberg. That's Jerry with a J. Um, you can find him and uh, his blog uh, at uh, geraldmweinberg.com, and you can follow his entertaining Twitter account at Jerry Weinberg. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jerry's background and career, uh, some of his books and ideas, and about writing. So thank you, Jerry, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. I hope I can give some useful information.
0: Uh, Yes, definitely. So um, uh, I start these podcasts by asking authors about their origin stories. Um, You've done so much in your life. You have a number of origin stories, I suppose one could say. But I just wanted to ask you first if you could talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up and how you first got started writing
1: well uh, I don't think I ever grew up <laughs> so, so I'm still waiting for that to happen but uh, I was uh, I spent my youngest years in Chicago uh, first on the south side and then we moved to the north side and um, I left Chicago of uh, my father's business failed and he went start started a new business in Omaha, Nebraska, where I was in the middle of high school. I transferred there, and um, that was one of the shocking moments in my life. I don't know how many of your listeners have moved in the middle of high school, but it's kind of, kind of tough, especially for a kid who was, uh, I was a bright kid, but not very social. Um, so I didn't have a lot of social skills and it was hard to make new friends and so on. But uh, there I was and uh, that got me started off in life. Um, how I got started writing, and it's hard to say because I can't remember when I didn't write. Just like I can't remember when I couldn't read. But I remember uh, before I was seven years old, I don't know how old, but before we moved to... The north side of Chicago, my father used to play a game with me he'd be reading a newspaper in the evening and he'd pick out uh, a group of words from the paper that he would find in reading. And um, if I didn't know them, I had to look them up in the dictionary and then I had to write a, a story using those words. And uh, I did that every night he was around, uh, I've used that exercise with my writing students, and it's, it's a very powerful exercise, and we have variants in that we do. But So I, ever since then I've been writing, uh, I didn't think of myself as a writer until uh, I published a couple books which uh, I thought, you know, I was just trying to help people do better with their computing, and uh, and somebody called me a writer at a certain point. I mean, well, maybe I am.
0: <laughs> Speaking of school, um, you uh, had an interesting experience that I, I identified with a little bit. Um, so I believe you got put forward a couple of grades at some point. I don't know how how young you were at that point. Um, and I believe the story goes that the teachers kind of isolated you um, uh, from the other students and had you even grade their work or something like that. Um, yes. my, my, Just just my minor version of that was uh, I was so good in grammar class that they just made me sit in the back and because I had poor handwriting, they made me write out <laughs> novels by hand. Um, mm. Didn't work.
1: Didn't work for handwriting. My, it didn't work for me either. I guess I hadn't thought about that for a long time, but we used to have these charts on the wall with perfect penmanship. And I was supposed to try to imitate that. And I, I was never any good at it. And some people said I should have been a doctor because I could write and describe inscrutable prescriptions. But um, yes, I was uh, in, in second grade. I think it was. I all you know, the students took an IQ test, which was big, big thing. They put a lot of stock in that apparently. And uh, apparently, I got a very high score which I didn't know what it was. My sister just a few weeks ago told me what it was, and it's a little scary, but it must have scared them because they and they isolated me from the other students. Partly for that, I think, and partly because I was a big pain in the ass for the, for the teachers. You know, I was always correcting things that they were right on the board and so on. And, um, yeah, and so, of course, being put ahead and being put aside Brought attention to me from the other students, and I used to, uh, I was isolated with one teacher, uh, except for music class and art, right? Where I, and then other and recess. And in recess, I'd go out and the other kids would beat me up for being different, right? I suspect a lot of Lean Pub's readers know this experience or something like you did or I did. Uh, so one of the Books that I am writing for some time. I'm collecting material for. I don't know if it'll ever come out. Is how to be happy though smart, right? Because I was pretty miserable as a kid, and a lot of it because I was smart. And uh, I've devoted my life to that, uh, helping uh, uh, smart people be happy. And uh, a lot of my books are sort of oriented that way um how to use your thinking more effectively and, and so on and um, yeah so those early years uh, form things you
0: know and, and go ahead no yeah no no thanks for that I hope I, I hope to read that book uh if and when um, it comes out um you know it is it is you know the relationship between uh intelligence or, Self-reflection and and happiness is something people have long thought about and experienced, and it would be great to hear your read your thoughts about it. Um, so, uh, you ended up moving. Um, I don't actually. I wanted to ask you, did have you were you a Cubs fan when you moved, and have you maintained that yes, affiliation? So, so these oh, must be good times
2: for you.
1: Yes, I could wear my Cubs hat for if you want to see me, man. I saw one of my most distinguished features of my life, is which I could, very few people could say until last year, I actually saw the Cubs play in the World Series <laughs> in, in 1945. Um, we didn't have television or anything in those days, so to see them, you had to be there. I was at Wrigley Field, waited in line from three in the morning, uh, got pushed out by grown-up people. I finally managed to buy a standing room ticket and watch the Cubs lose the seventh game of the series, which has affected me my whole life. But I remained a faithful Cubs fan all that time.
0: Um, One question I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned being uh, at the game in 1945. Uh, I believe you were probably about 12 or so at that time. Um, What was it like being a kid in the States during the Second World War.
1: Well, that's interesting. I thought a lot about that. It was a very formative time. Now, first of all, um, um, we were all unquestionably uh, in favor of the war. You know, I mean, there were, I suppose there were dissenters at the time, you know, like there were later for Vietnam and so on. But there was no question in our mind that the Japs and the Germans were bad people and we were going to defeat them. And we all worked hard. We collected tin foil and paper, and so one of the, one of the memories, fondest memories of that time was I had, uh, we collected paper, we had paper drives, and uh, I would haul this wagon to school every uh, Tuesday filled with paper that we collected around in the neighborhood. And one of the things that we did, uh, we collected comic books. There was a lot of comic books around. And uh, the, the reward you got for collecting, your team collected the most paper that week, you got to skip class, be in the, and load the truck that came around to collect the paper. And while we sat, we would read the comic books. Uh, And then, of course, we actually would take some of them home if we didn't get to read them, bring them back the next week and get credit for them. And then, uh, if I look back on it, I watch the Antiques Roadshow and I see people getting $10,000 for a Superman comic book. And I think I had millions of dollars of comic books in my hands when when I was, you know, eight years old.
2: I was just going
0: to ask if you'd squirreled some of those away.
1: No, I don't know what happened to him. open went to the paper drive. Yeah. But after that, we collected, we also collected uh, fat, you know, cooking fat. So I remember uh, there was a sign on the butcher's window that said, ladies, please don't bring your old fat cans in here on Saturday.
0: Oh <laughs> <laughs> um uh And um, so you spoke about... Uh, moving in high school, and you, you ended up uh, going to university. And I was wondering um, where you went for your undergraduate days and what your major was.
1: Okay, well, first of all, I didn't plan to go to the university. Everybody assumed I was going, but I had so much trouble because I was marked as a you know, smart kid and everything. I was determined not to go to the university. And uh, I had a, a job lined up uh, in a garage fixing cars and stuff, which I really like to do. And uh, But they wouldn't hire me in the summer because they had a lot of people who would be hired and then leave for school. So they wanted me to wait. I was going to wait until the summer was over and then I would start my mechanic's job. And uh, for, so for the summer job, I was a counselor at a camp. And uh, one of the other counselors convinced me And you go to college, you can meet girls. So I decided I'd go to college. I had a good reason, finally. And of course, that didn't necessarily work out, that part of it. But uh, I I was in Omaha then, so I went to the State University uh, in Nebraska, in Lincoln. Um, The day I got there, it was the day before school started. And I remember that day very well, because I had, at age 11, I had read an article in Time magazine about computers, and knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and uh, so, but nobody had ever seen a computer. Right? Nobody knew where they were, or what so on. So I went to the university, and, and the counselors said, "Well, uh, what do you want to major in?" And I said, "Well, uh, I want I want to work with computers." And they got this blank look. Because the counselor had never seen a computer or anything. And so um, he talked to another counselor and they came back and he said, well, computers, uh, that's either uh, uh, physics or electronics. And he said, you're pretty good at math, so it should be physics. So I started out as a physics major, never seeing any computers. And after two years, I became the computer. That was my job title and I worked for the physics department Inverting matrices with a pencil and a Frieden calculator Did that for a year which really shaped my thinking as a programmer later I still had not seen a computer, there wasn't one on campus except for me There wasn't one on campus or anything And I, um, in the, on the way I, um, I had to take English and uh, I ran into uh, Bill Gaffney, who was my English professor, and he did me a great service. Uh, he gave us every week we were supposed to write something, and uh, I uh, wrote something. Uh, the first I remember, the first week, he wanted to write about a process, which was also interesting given my career. So I wrote about the process of dealing with a snake bite, because I had been uh, the leader of the. First A team, the Boy Scout First A team in Chicago, yeah, won the city title a couple of years. So I'll write. I know about snake bites, so I'll write about snake bites. I wrote this totally boring paper about snake bites, and I got a C on it or something. And and the next week he gave another assignment. I can't remember what it was, but I it was stupid, and I just wrote a paper about why it was stupid, and why writing with somebody else wanting to write wasn't what I wanted to do and uh, sure enough I got called into the professor's office and I thought here it comes and Bill Gaffney says to me this is the best paper I ever got He says, and you made a good argument and you convinced me and you don't have to do my stupid assignments but you have to write something every week whatever you want and that was my first inclination that I might be a writer.
0: Yeah, I read I read that story, and one thing um, I found uh, really interesting about it was um, actually how you you got that professor who turned out to be so great in the first place um, was a, a sort of close call and took took some gumption uh, on your part, uh, just like your your challenge to your professor did in your second paper. Can you talk a little bit about that yeah, uh, it, sort, sorting hat kind of process that went on?
1: Yeah. Well, we have, first of all uh, we took. A, qualifying tests coming in and they told me oh you you know you can skip the freshman English and go right to an advanced English class and I said no thanks it's just more work you know I thought so I go to the freshman English class and there's a whole bunch of students standing in the hall and there were two classes meeting at the same time and two professors so they counted off everybody one two one two one two and uh, I see the two people one of them. I don't remember, he looked like a real professor, and the other one was Bill Gaffney, who was scruffy looking, uh, didn't look like the other professors, and turned out he had a very different background. He had been an editor in New York for many years and had come back to Lincoln because his mother was sick. And I, I said, that's the guy I want to be with, but I kept the wrong number. So I just lied about the number and went into his class, which was the smartest move I ever made. You know, you think about a moment in your life that changes everything. That was it for me. I mean, looking back on, it, we became great friends. I became his reader, uh, as it, later on, as another job to supplement my uh, being a computer, um, and uh, we became we were friends until he. Finally died. Um.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a wonderful story. Um, and yeah, as you say, you know, there are those moments where you can look back and just see, you know, if I'd just gone into the other door, I might have ended up in a very different place. Um, and so you you uh, spent your first years in in Chicago, and then you spent some time in Nebraska, and I believe you then went to California.
1: Okay, before that, before that, I just have to tell you, so I. Uh, in the physics department, I was given the, as a junior, I was given a, a job as a teaching assistant, which they'd never done with an undergraduate before. So I got to teach physics there. And um, I also uh, did, did apparently did very well in philosophy, in logic and so on. and, and also in, uh, in math, so when you ask my major, it turns out I had four majors. You're only allowed to have two, but I had four. Uh, math, physics, English, and philosophy. And uh, I took a lot of ribbing from the English people. I said, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're not a humanist, you're a techie because you do physics and stuff like that. But uh, so I went to um, Berkeley for physics, I was going to get a Ph.D. in physics, and uh, it was interesting because I couldn't—I I still didn't know anybody who'd seen a computer at that point. And uh, I applied to six places, and uh, Berkeley came back and said we will give you a give you a fellowship. So I accepted them, and then a week later, I got an offer from MIT to be in their computing lab which was like, oh, my God, that's what I really wanted to do. But I was afraid. See, I thought if I told Berkeley, I'd change my mind, they would blacklist me somehow, like I thought all these people communicated with one another, which was, you know, my whole young life was marked by being really smart kid but not knowing what was going on. Does that make sense to you?
0: Oh, that definitely makes sense
1: to me. So uh, part of helping smart people be happy is helping them know what's really going on. Uh, So I went to Berkeley and turned on MIT and some other schools. Stanford turned me down. That was the only one that turned me down, which was interesting because a few years later, they invited me to come and be on the faculty. And that was kind of satisfying to turn them down. Imagine. <laughs>
0: um, what was the atmosphere like at Berkeley at the time? And this would have been sort of early Cold War, if I'm if I'm
1: correct. Yeah, it was before the big uh, Berkeley demonstrations and things like that. And I was pretty busy. Uh, I was, uh, you know, studying. We had a first child there, and the second one on the way, and uh, I was getting ready to get my PhD in physics. So I wasn't too involved in campus life uh, there, but there wasn't, as far as I know, there wasn't a whole lot going on until a few years after I left, Um, but it was California, and I was different, and I was seeing new things uh, that you don't see in the Midwest. Um, And then um, one day, uh, I was very, I had passed my, my oral exams and all my coursework and I just had to work on my doctorate I was working with some of the uh, uh, with professors that had been my professor's professor that is I, and they had introduced me from Nebraska so I was working with them and setting up experiments in cosmic rays which I was totally uninterested in but I was going to get a PhD in cosmic rays and I'm reading Physics Today magazine, one day, and I turned the page, and there was an ad from IBM that said, do you want to help people solve problems in computing and do this and that? And the word programmer still didn't exist then. So it didn't say anything about programmer. And I said, that's exactly what I've always wanted to do. You know, and they're all, but they wouldn't want me. But but I wrote him a letter, and it was, of course, well before email. I wrote him a letter, and they said, "Well, come down to the office in Oakland, and for an interview." And I gave an interview, and they offered me a job for uh, $450 a month, uh, which was like more money than I'd ever seen. Uh, At the same time, um, and I had a so I dropped out. Another choice I had. At the same time, Boeing offered me a job.
2: I don't know how they got my
1: name, and and for twice as much money. And that was another one of those binary decisions I made. Because uh, Boeing, I was going to design airplanes, which was interesting, but not as interesting as these computer things. And so I started uh, working for IBM.
0: Yeah, just to just to pause there for a moment for people listening, I I might be mistaken about this. But you know, at the time, IBM was international business machines, it wasn't it wasn't seen as a computing company.
1: Right. In fact, when I went to San Francisco the branch office, uh, my title was applied science representative. And my job basically was to apply science to selling business machines. Right. Well, they had, they did not have a computer in the San Francisco office. Uh, they had one on the way. There was probably no computer in San Francisco at the time, in the Bay if you can imagine. There was no Silicon Valley. I was taken down once uh, around that time to um, San Jose, which was a farm community, which had an IBM card plant, and a Ford assembly plant, but there was no c- computing business except in a garage secreted away. IBM was developing the first disk drive, which was a very impressive, refrigerator-sized device that shook the whole building when whenever the arm moved from one disk to another. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that was uh, an experience on the refrigerator. Anyway. Uh, I There was no computer in the office, but I was going to be the one. So they put me in a closet where they had all the books, all the manuals, and I had, I read about programming, the IBM 650, the IBM 607, and the IBM 704 computer, which, which had, nobody had ever seen one of those yet. And, and they said, you have two, in two weeks, the, a couple other guys are starting, and you're going to teach them how to program.
0: That's quite a burden.
1: Well, so I studied in that class for two weeks, right? And I guess I learned how to program or in theory, but I had no computer to actually try. And uh, I gave the class, and then uh, a week or two later, the 6.50 arrived in the office, and I got to actually run a program. I'll never forget it.
0: I'd just like to actually pause there for a second. So one detail I didn't know was um, that you that you mentioned earlier was that you uh, first read about computers when you were 11 and were immediately struck by them and so while we've, when, now that we finally got to this climactic moment when you encounter your first computer, what was what was your impression when you were 11 of what computers would would be?
1: Well, I think it's a couple of things. One is I think that they were perfect they were called thinking machines or giant brains and after that time I read Ed Berkeley's book called giant brains or machines that think and uh, that really impressed me Uh, and I thought they would be perfect. Of course, they perfectly execute all the errors that I make in my right, Um, which uh, people haven't quite realized the significance of that. You can make errors a lot faster than you could working by hand. Uh, But I had some sense of of, uh, error problems because of my job as a computer. You know I was involved with in that so my first thing I did uh, I wrote a program to compute a table of sines and cosines a trig table which I had used trig tables that was the way you did calculations in those days and uh, it, it computed the whole trig table in a matter of minutes and I was stunned you know I was just like wow this is more than I even expected more than I had even dreamed of. I was just in love with the, with the machine at that time. And uh, from then on, it was all downhill. It was just more... And I've been doing it ever since.
0: And, um, uh, you know, I just wanted to say here, one of the themes of this podcast is I ask people who, if I'm if the author is um, involved with computers and software and testing and things like that, I ask them, when did you first get into computers and... Um, most of the time, the answer is when a parent brought one home. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's just—it's so, so exciting for me to hear your story about uh, having one one brought to you in a very different way, and <laughs> with, with such a build-up where it was something you'd anticipated and knew about uh, before, and uh, we're just waiting for it to to finally be there. And it was, you know, very different from the experience that people would have had, say, from the '70s onwards, with you know having mm-hmm. one. Put on the, the kitchen table or something like that, um, uh, and so uh, you were. So now you're working for IBM and you're working with computers, um, and you then uh, ended up working on Project Mercury, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit uh, first about what Project Mercury was, and uh, then tell a little bit of the story about how you ended up working on that.
1: Okay. Um, well, Project Mercury was the first man in space by the United States. And um, how I got involved, I was working, by that time I was working in Washington DC uh, for IBM. I had been transferred first to Los Angeles to start the Service Bureau, where we tried to start the first uh, software organization within IBM. And uh, until IBM, we, we were going okay until we sold a uh, a big job, a big simulation
2: uh,
1: for Motorola, and uh, and it was canceled by the IBM executives. They said they didn't want to be in the programming business. All right, um, 1957, All right. and uh, and then. Um, uh, I was I moved to the Washington D.C. the Federal Systems Division um, to uh, uh, be part of their uh, job, and they bid on uh, we bid on the uh, Mercury project. The way that happened was I was um, on a trip somewhere I can't remember where selling trying to sell computers for IBM, and I came back and. Uh, to the office and been two weeks away, and I came back and just dropped in the office to get my mail, and I went to my desk, which I shared with three other applied science representatives, and because uh, we were not supposed to hang around the office, we were supposed to always be out selling. And I got my mail. I got on the elevator to go down and go home, and on the elevator was Saul Gas. Now I don't know if you know his name. But he was, um, he worked for IBM at the time, he wrote books on linear programming and stuff. Anyway, uh, he's, oh well, <clears throat> so I went, well, before I went in the elevator, my boss called me in and said, uh, we're going to have a bidding conference down in Virginia, uh, in the next day or something, uh, on Bidding. I said, on Project Mercury. I said, no, I'm not interested. Of course, I didn't know what Project Mercury was. I'd never heard of it. So I got on the elevator and saw guy. I said, well, did you? are you going to the bidding conference? And I said, oh, no, I've been traveling. I don't want to go on another trip. And then I sort of said, just and said, by the way, well, what is this Project Mercury? And he says, we're putting a man in space. And I just, like, my whole body, just, I, I still feel it. It's like, and I just turned this down. I mean, I was a great science fiction reader, and here was the putting a man in space, and I just turned on an opportunity to be a part of this project. And I just got back on the elevator, and this was another one of those moments, right? I went upstairs, and I said, is it too late to change my mind? I said, no, you can go. Went down uh, to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, for this bidding conference where there were over 100 different groups bidding on the space tracking network that would be part of the project. And IBM was teamed up with AT&T and Burns and Row construction, and Bendix for radars. We have a team, we spent three or four days down there. <clears throat> and uh, then we were to write a bid. Well, uh, as I learned uh, later, when I was learning all along and, I, and you see that in my books on requirements and so on that the um, problem solving is they had instead of defining what the problem was they had defined a solution approach NASA and, and their solution approach wouldn't work I read it and it wouldn't work they needed a, to handle multiple uh, devices from around the world, radars were sending in data from all over, and running displays and, and things uh, locally in the control center. And uh, the way they were going to do it, because those days every computer was just a single-track machine. There was no multi-programming. And I, I had read some theoretical articles about multi-programming. Never, nobody ever had a system IBM the system, and realized that. Uh, their approach would work. So I wrote up a white paper explaining why it would work, and I turned that in instead of uh, uh, doing what they wanted, and the IBM executives were furious, you know, you've got to respond to what the customers said, well, you know, we can't do it, it can't be done that way. But they finally convinced them to give this paper to NASA, and then a week later NASA called IBM and said, You've got to come down here, I and mean, oh, God, they're really going to give us hell for doing this. We came down, and they said, we read your paper, and you convinced us. And none of the other people who are bidding on this understood this. So we want to give you the contract, which is like a $100 million. So they will give you the contract. Would you be willing to change the members of your team to somebody else? And now we go to AT&T and so on. And so we got the job, and we built it. Uh, Nobody had ever built a system like this before. And it's been the basis of the space tracking network ever since.
0: And what what made it unique? I mean, maybe if you could um, explain to people who might not know what what multiprogramming is or what a multiprogrammed operating system
1: means. Well, multiprogramming is something that we do naturally. Uh, you can do, you can pay attention to more than one thing at a time right? simultaneously uh, juggling and reading something that's on the wall and talking to someone and so on, right? You, you know, we do that, we don't think about it so much, um, and in this case a computer had to be juggling, if you like, uh, radar data coming from all over the world, signals going back to them, signals going to uh, control center, uh, signals going up to the satellite uh, is when to bring it down and so on, keeping its time and all that. And we didn't have clocks in computers at that time, and we had to keep time. Right? We had to build our own clock, I had an engineer on my team, and we soldered it into the mainframe because uh, IBM would have taken a year or two to produce one, which they ultimately did. Um, and so that's what we were doing. We are just keeping track of all the data about the you know, keep track of thing, and eventually bring the thing down uh, with the person in it, bring him down alive. We used to have to tell people, we said, oh, you're putting a man in space. No, we oh, we're putting him in space and we're bringing him back alive. That was our mission. Was easy enough to put somebody into space if you don't care whether you bring him back. And, and we had to bring him back within a very precise Area out in the Pacific Ocean because uh, if you were off a little in your calculations, it could be 20, 30 miles away from where they were expecting them, and they would never get to them in time before the thing would sink or whatever. So uh, we had a lot of uh, stuff to do there for the first time uh, for the multi-program, which was something we had to make up. Uh, modify our machine a little bit and then write a different kind of program. Uh, we had to uh, locate Australia. People it turned out people didn't know where Australia was, precisely enough for us. We had two tracking stations in Australia, one on the west Coast, one on the East Coast. and they were very important in you know, tracking the satellite. But nobody ever needed to know within a few hundred yards where these places were relative to Washington, D.C., right? So we had to launch a satellite and track it and use that tracking to backtrack to the location of of these two stations. And we didn't know what time it was in Australia. There was no way at that time to synchronize clock between, say, the U.S. and Australia and other places in the world. We had to solve that problem um, we had to solve the problem that, contrary to what people believed, the Earth was not a sphere. Uh, it's kind of a pear-shaped thing. We had to figure out from early tracking data what shape the Earth really was. which uh, and, and it's all kinds of stuff. So it was a wonderful experience.
0: It sounds just absolutely fascinating. And um, for those listening who might not be all that familiar with the history, um, at the time, to- I mean, I think there were 2 million people involved in Project Mercury in total. It was a a huge national effort and um, it was very intense. Um, uh, I only know about this from, you know, reading and history and film and things like that. But the Russians made it to space first Um, and um, that hit Americans in particular very hard. Uh, partly because of the titanic struggle going on between two views of the world that was kind of at stake in the public consciousness, and people weren 't necessarily sure which one was right um, and there were all kinds of claims being made about which political system uh, would be better at um, you know divining the secrets of nature and then transforming them into successful technology and so there was just so much at stake and i wanted to wanted to ask you what what the feeling was like when you succeeded?
1: Well, interestingly, it was kind of an anti-climax in a a way. In a way, it was a feeling of great triumph. And and, uh, By the time we actually put the first man there, um, we had already done things with other living things, we've already brought them back successfully. Uh, we knew, uh, we, and we had such a high level of reliability in the testing we, that during that project, we created the first test team that ever existed. And as far as I have ever known, um, because we knew that testing this system was major, major job. We took our best programmers, we made them into a test team. They developed tools, simulations, and so on. So when it actually happened, the first guy went up, and we were kind of very anxious about, okay, would it really work? But we knew deep down when it happened, and we brought back uh, John Glenn, for example. Um, I don't know, at least I did. I thought, okay, yeah, that was done. And, and Which is something that I've observed uh, over the years in consulting. The different ones of us Have very different ideas of what done means, and you have to watch out for that. Um, You write a program, and some people think it's done when you have a design that you think will work, and they're finished. You know, some some grunts will write some code and make this happen. Other of us, more grunty ones, we uh, think well, until we actually get the thing running in in code and our tests. We're not really done. But other people think until it's run through all the tests and gone live and brought back the band successfully many times, you're not really done. So those different views give different ideas. And you can see if you look at all the books in Lean Pub, some address some of the authors think it's done at one point, others think it's done at another point, others think it's done at another point.
0: Yeah, I've got a lot of questions to ask you about your consulting work and, and um, your uh, discoveries and inventions in that time. Um, but before we get there, uh, we've got a couple more things, or I've got a couple more things about your um, career to ask you about. You, I think it was after some point after your work on Project Mercury that you went to the University of Michigan um, and you completed a doctorate there in communication sciences. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yes. Yes. And what, um, what led you there? Well, IBM uh, started a new program uh, called the IBM Resident Study Fellowship, and they they were going to put they wanted to put this decorate their their stationery with a few PhDs, Hmm. (laughs) right? And uh, so uh, I uh, applied for this program, but I was involved in the Mercury project at the time. And I guess I was kind of central to what was going on, a couple of us, uh, and they, uh, they, they quote, lost my application. <laughs> okay. Well, I um, objected to that, um, and uh, then, uh, our, well actually, uh, no, I got that a little backwards, uh, they also were starting at that time, the Systems Research Institute in New York. For advanced computing work, advanced systems work for some of the best people, and um, I applied for that, and they lost that application, and so um, I protested that, and they just I won that protest. uh, It was kind of a scandal. Uh, My manager had lost it, you know, uh, because he didn't want me to leave, and so they rewarded me and I got to be in the first class there well that first class was quite an experience too Um, it was like the 30 we were told we were the 30 best software people or systems people in IBM and then after about it was a three month long class and after a couple weeks we were so smart we finally figured out if we were the 30 smartest people who are these instructors And uh, most of them were kind of salespeople who had no particular depth of understanding, so we kind of took over the class right? and taught ourselves, except for two people, who were both famous, uh, people who were very different, Ken Iverson was one, you know who he was, who designed APL language, and uh, Fred Brooks, who wrote The Mythical Man Month. and uh, and uh, they, they were fine, we got along fine with them, and the rest of them pretty much we replaced. And I wound up teaching classes and so on, and after that class, uh, I was taken aside and said, um, we'd like you to come here and be on our faculty, um, and your job is to see that that revolution never happens again. That was a unique uh, thing for IBM. So, Okay, so I accepted that job, but meantime, uh, I had to be taken off Project Mercury and they didn't want to do that, so we went back and forth. And then after being, getting the institute going, then the resident Study Fellowship thing came up and I applied for that, and they lost my application. And I went through the same business again, and I wound up going there to Michigan. I, I had a choice of places to go. So I, I narrowed it down to MIT in Michigan, and Michigan, and I went to both places to interview. Well, at MIT, I saw, um, uh, what's his name, um, I can't come up with his name right this moment, um, Corbato. And he wanted me to come and write a multi-program system for them. Uh, and uh, I thought, and then they'd give me a PhD, and I thought, well, that is, I wanted to learn new things. I didn't want to just do the same thing again. In Michigan, would looked better. There were people there that I really wanted to work with, and they were starting this communication sciences thing, which they were having trouble getting people for because it was a really hard program. Um, so I went, and along with the Ted Codd, you know who Ted Codd was, who invented... Uh, uh, relational databases and other things. And um, uh, uh, um, Don Norman, who wrote the psychology of everyday things, he was there. Well, bo- both of us were there, and a few other people who later became very well known. And uh, we uh, studied there, and it was a funny experience. I mean, they, we had to. Uh, qualify in seven different fields that had to do with communications um, and uh, computing wasn't one of them at that time now the program is called computing and communication science but the uh, there was a, um, well, a computer cor- introductory computer course was required uh, as part of the program but the problem was, and I had written the textbook. That was that was the textbook for that class, so I assumed I didn't have to take the class. <laughs> you know, I mean, the second year, the uh, instructor for that class saw me in the hall. He said, how come you're not in my class? You know, it's required. I said, well, I wrote the textbook. He says, well, that doesn't matter. He says, we can't set a precedent for you. <laughs> so I talked to my... Uh, thesis advisor, Antoine Rappaport, and he told the guy not to be ridiculous and took care of that. But um, we qualified in all these different subjects, which was, it was, that was a great experience. Um,
0: and did you have to write a dissertation?
1: I or- wrote a dissertation. My dissertation had to do with uh, using computer to do psychological experiments on thinking, which has always been my interest And I uh, showed how, where uh, AHA experiences came from and how I could generate that on the computer and so on. And uh, it would have been published in the psychology literature, but my psychology member of my committee, who was a famous guy in psychology, was going to get it published as a psych monograph. He died two weeks before my thesis defense. He was mowing the lawn and he dropped dead so I never went It was another one of those dividing moments of life so I never became a quote psychologist in that sense right uh, but uh, of course now it's standard to use computers to run psychological tests of all sorts um, you can still get a copy of my thesis at University Microfilms I suppose LeanPub could publish it
0: uh, yeah um that would be a great artifact um actually it's it's funny i I tried to find it in the University of michigan library uh and and couldn't i I confess I only looked for about five or ten minutes but um
1: that would well, be great James Bach found it and he got a copy so he said yeah you know, so i have I have it now in you know cause in those days it was just um typed right Oh, but that was a big innovation, too. It was actually had it typed by a company that had a word processing machine from IBM. And IBM actually paid as part of my fellowship for about $800 to have it all typed up. And that was a new thing. But it was great. I mean, going to graduate school where I was getting my full IBM salary and all my expenses were paid, all my books were paid for my tuitions, and so on. So that was very nice. Uh, and
0: where did you move on to after that?
1: So then I, uh, I went back to IBM in New York. Um, and then uh, they were starting a systems research institute in Europe, in Switzerland, in Geneva. And I was considered, uh, I guess, the one who knew most about starting up an institute. So I went to Geneva for several years, and started that up, and uh, that was also a great experience. It's students from all over the world, and uh, my wife, in the meantime, was getting her doctorate in anthropology at Michigan, and uh, and she was doing her field work in the mountains, in a mountain community in Switzerland. So. Uh, that, um, that was a great time because we also had, we had two three-month classes in a year, and the rest of the year we head off to do research and study and so on. Um, and I liked that because I could do writing then and stuff. But then, uh, go
0: ahead. Oh, that just sounds, that sounds really exciting.
1: It was really great. Wow. And I was also studying French then. I finally, finally mastered a language reasonably well. Um, IBM paid for a tutor, and um, so I was, um, uh, well then the the director of the institute uh, got an offer, he was Italian, got an offer of a professorship in Italy and decided to leave, and they offered me to become director, which I don't want to be director of anything, I never did, and I turned him down, and when they brought in another guy, and he knew that I had turned down the job that he had taken. He wasn't too happy and I wasn't too comfortable there. In the meantime, Danny finished her doctorate and was looking for a university job somewhere. And of course, there was no chance in Europe. And so we found a place in the US where she could go and uh, where I could go and start a new department there. Uh, on School of Advanced Technology in uh, New York State, in Binghamton. And uh, we were there for a few years. And one day, uh, I, I was a college professor, you know, I mean, it was a big deal. I was, um, we did a lot of good things there, but one day I was giving a lecture. They used to fill my classes with huge numbers of students. And I fell asleep during a lecture that I was giving. And I decided this this had to be. It was that boring to me. It must have been terrible for them. <laughs> and I decided that wasn't the way to teach. In meantime, while we we're there, we had been. Uh, well, Danny went to Nebraska, from there, and I went uh, Independent. Uh, but but at Nebraska, uh, there was a program uh, continuing something we had done at Binghamton. Uh, and it was based on experiential learning, and out of that you see I have this four book series at, at LeanPub uh, about how to do experiential learning, which, is, uh, which is, ever since then, that's what we've done. I mean, we're not just teaching computing and so on, we're teaching life skills and so on, by experiencing no lecturing, no PowerPoint, nothing. Uh, for 10 years, we ran an I conference that way, uh, and we trained thousands of people. It was beginning to affect other conferences, finally. Uh,
0: so And so that was the beginning of your time when you said you went independent. That was sort of more or less the beginning of the, the era of your work as a consultant, I suppose.
1: Well, actually, that began in IBM. I mean, I was a consultant in IBM. But of course, with a secret agenda, not so secret, wherever I consulted, they had to wind up, when I left, they had to wind up purchasing more IBM equipment than before I came, or not throwing it out in some cases, you know, when I went to solve some problems that they had. Um, So I had a lot of, uh, because when I went to the university, I made a, uh, part of my contract with them was that I would have a certain amount of time for consulting. Because I still had IBM as a as a consultant client,
2: okay,
1: All right. and, and then I took on other clients, and it was kind of freeing. I didn't have to sell them IBM computers, uh, if that wasn't the best way to solve their problem. Sometimes just sit down and think about it, they could solve it. You know, sometimes with pencil and paper, and sometimes with a computer or with a program that had been fixed in some way, or something for. So it was just consulting really started uh, when I was at IBM.
0: And then, um, uh, just moving on, I don't want to I don't want to tire out your voice. I know it's you've only recently sort of recovered it. Um, uh, you wrote the Psychology of Computer Programming um, and uh, got it published, and I wanted to ask you what was the what was the inspiration for that book. <sighs>
1: Uh, inspiration is an interesting word. Um, well, I'd written, by then published a couple of books on programming, right? which you know, laid out, see when I first taught in a programming class in IBM, for the IBM 709, the class was five weeks long, five days a week, eight hours a day, and what the way the class had been designed and it be taught before I started doing it, was you took the manual for the machine, the reference manual, and you went through it page by page and taught every instruction in alphabetical order. And there were 300 instructions. Can you imagine this? Wow. And you, could, there, you couldn't run anything on a computer. They were too expensive. You had to be on all theoretically. I made a great innovation uh, with great effort and political savvy, I got permission to run one program one time for the whole class in five, in, in five weeks. That was a big innovation which like shook up everything. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's hard to recapture what that was like. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, at least I changed the order of things. And we didn't teach stuff in alphabetical order, but something that made sense. We didn't actually teach all 300 instructions at uh, in a time. Um, and I, I don't know if the class were any good. I did have a, a, a moment of uh, enlightenment at the end of one five-week class. A guy who came from uh, some government agency, probably from the National Security Agency, uh, came up to me and said, uh, so this was the most wonderful class, you're such a great instructor, everything was perfectly clear, and I said, there must be something you didn't understand, isn't there something you could tell me, and he said, well, I have one question, okay, he says, what's a bit? Huh. <laughs> this was after five weeks on a binary machine, right? Oh, and nice. was, so uh, that was a big moment for me, to, brought me down. And and kind of led up, it was the beginning of leading up to questioning this lecture method. You know, uh, the, you know, what they say it's a way of moving material from the instructor's notes to the student's notes without passing through the mind of either one. <laughs> uh, i got an improvement on that at Michigan. I had an instructor who actually made his notes by copying the textbook. And then reading it aloud from his notes, reading aloud as he wrote the copy on the board. All right. Well, all this was led up to the fact that I decided we needed different methods of instruction, and it's it's been a whole new world. And that went on tangent, I... No, no,
0: that's that's really interesting. Um, uh, one of the lines um, from the psychology of computer programming that struck me uh, that I wanted to ask you about was you write our profession suffers under an enormous burden of myths and half-truths. And I was wondering if you could maybe mention what, what some like just sort of give us a general impression of what the myths and half-truths were at this sort of relatively early moment in the history of computer programming. Obviously there were some myths or half-truths around how to properly instruct people.
1: Yes, there was that. Well, for example, a lot of our terminology builds those myths and half through in. okay? Of course, those days, they were often called giant brains, which they're not, right? Um, but one of, one of my favorites, when I was teaching that course, one of the problems I had was on the machine. We had fixed-point arithmetic, and we also had floating-point arithmetic built into the machine, which was a big innovation then to build floating point instead of simulating it on the machine. So I'm explaining floating point and fixed point to people in the class and it occurred to me and they said, well, what's the difference? I said, well, look, we have these two kinds of numbers and in one kind of number, the decimal point is always in a fixed place. And the other point, the decimal point floats around in a number depending on the calculation that you did. So where the, where the decimal point is fixed, that's called floating point. And where the decimal point floats, that's called fixed point. That should be easy to remember. <laughs> okay? I mean, that, that's an example of the kind of stuff that we had to deal with. And we have to deal with it, right?
2: Yeah.
1: We, we're stuck with those names. Um, the, um, what were some other myths? Um well, of course, program testing was, uh, first of all, there was no separate test uh, groups at, at the time. And then when we started that, and the Mercury Project and other people picked it up in, in difficult projects, um, then um, the idea got around, but it got misinterpreted. That having a testing group was a way to get the testing done cheaper because you didn't have to have really smart people to do it. So the, the myth that test testing is easier than programming and writing code is just a stupid myth. Because uh, anybody can write code if it doesn't have to work.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, right? that's very interesting to, that for me to hear you say that because that's obviously um, a a myth that you know persists to this day. Yeah. Yes, Uh, you know, forty-six years after the publication of that book, and you know, the testers that I've interviewed for this podcast carry with them that uh, a sort of—I mean, it's—it's the sense that testing is somehow easy or throwaway activity that you can sort of Mm -hmm. um, commoditize—is—is still strong enough that people have chips on their shoulders about it.
1: Yes, absolutely, and we're still fighting that. And of course, you can—you can. Uh, Well, the the extreme limit of that, and of course in my book, uh, Perfect Software, uh, I address that issue quite a bit, Um, It's it's testing is just harder than programming because, um, well first of all, you write a program and you don't have any testing, it doesn't have to work, (laughs) it's not very difficult to write programs that don't have to work. Same way, you can write programs that are fast if they don't have to work, right? And that's what I call the uh, the first law of computing: is that you can you can accomplish anything in your program if the program doesn't have to do what you want it to do. It can be fast, it can be short, it can be uh, beautiful on the page. Or it can be, you know, and and people have not necessarily understood that. So uh, that's been a struggle. We've been fighting that for a long, long time. Um, but it's just harder. I mean, there's so many ways a program can be wrong uh, and ways that it can be hidden in so many different ways. I, um, one of the books I wanted to write, and I might still write, but I kind of gave up on it, was uh, a book just containing um, stories of various program errors that we found over the years through testing. And the trouble is, when, when you start describing the situation, it becomes very clear what the error is going to be. But at the time, it's not clear at all to you. Right? So it would be like a great book of mystery stories, except I can't, and I've written mystery stories, and I can't somehow make the same. Thing happen when I'm writing about an error you know, that we spent three months trying to find, uh, maybe I, I had to, would have to dramatize, I'm still thinking about it, but it's something I haven't been able to accomplish. Those who have done it know what it's like when you can't find what's wrong, or when you had no idea anything was wrong until some disaster happens, somebody dies because of a computer fault or, you know, or some huge accident happens. And I, in the book, uh, in Perfect Software, I have just examples of, I don't know, four or five billion dollar errors that were made, all of which were one character wrong in a program.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's it's interesting, you know, in a world where software kind of sits Underneath or on top of everything we're doing, um, the importance of getting things right uh has just has just grown over time um, and actually another another thing I wanted to bring up uh, that you you know you invoked you know uh, in that in the psychology of computer programming in the early seventies uh, that persists to this day as a problem is um well you write in the book that you want to encourage the manager to look look upon the programmer as a human being rather than as another one of the machines.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it's interesting that, and this is just to say, I would, I mean, you know, in the last 25 years or so, uh, on the West coast of the United States, uh, uh culture has emerged where, you know, the pro- programmers kind of are seen as, uh, these, you know, highly sought after, uh, professionals who are, you know, the, the equal or even the superior of the, the mere executive um, mm-hmm. who manages the business side of things. Uh, but this is not true, generally speaking, uh, on um, the East Coast, uh, where another kind of culture persists, where, you know, the, even not just the programmers, but, you know, the computers themselves are seen as a cost center and mm-hmm. not 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 respected even. Um, you know, I was just shown an image the other day from, um, uh, a colleague who was looking into some insurance and, um, you know, the picture of this, uh, of what a programmer was uh, that they had to promote their, their tech insurance was a guy standing in front of a bunch of a a sort of overweight guy standing in front of a bunch of servers, you know, holding a, a ball made of, um, cords. Uh, which Which is actually a particular image that i 've seen in sort of east Coast marketing um, uh, and uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what why you think this relationship to the programmer as a mere machine is something that is has persisted so much in some places
1: okay first of all it 's great that you mentioned this because you know i i started out my career in the Midwest, where there were no computers, I was the computer, which was a big influence. Then I went to the West Coast and I got my first real training there under Bernie Dimsdale. when I went through the Los Angeles area, who had worked with John von Neumann, you know who von Neumann was, right? right. And so I learned certain things, I like what's now called pair programming, right? Program reviewing and so on. And the whole West Coast, at that time clearly had a different culture, even then, all right, 60 years ago. It was already different between the East Coast and the West Coast. I didn't. There was a, a Western Joint Computer Conference and an Eastern Joint Computer Conference, and they were very different. You may be able to find the proceedings of them. You'll see already see this difference. And, and that may have been because we didn't have jet planes yet, and we didn't have the Internet. No, I mean, if I had to go at a certain point, we had to fly our programs to the East Coast because there was no computer on the West Coast. Seven hundred four that we were using, we punch up a bunch of cards, fill boxes with them, send them to New York, and then they would on a plane, and then they would be picked up and run there, and then they brought back. And uh, we were. Um, um. <laughs> We were One of the great mysteries that's never been solved is one of our uh, things never came back. And we don't know what happened to it. It was on a nonstop flight from New York, but the, our, our punch card's output wasn't there when the plane landed. So it's somewhere. It never, never landed for the last 60 years. But we were developing the world's first operating system, certainly IBM's first operating system. Right. Before everything was run on the 704, this machine that was $800 an hour at a time when $800 that would be like $5,000 today. Right? I mean, I was making $450 a month, and the machine was $800 an hour, and it was run like a personal computer where you sat there, but but at least the. Comp- personal computers have operating systems, there were nothing. You had to do everything by hand. You had enter stuff in binary and the console and so on. And we were trying to improve on that. We were trying to test it from Los Angeles when our machine was in New York. And we got, and this goes to that culture thing, we were told we couldn't do that. They wouldn't run our operating system because the way they st- charge people for using this machine at $800 an hour. They had a time card. IBM was still in the time card business. You know, do you know that? That was one of the business machines. Yeah. When you punch in in the morning, you punch out at night. And they used one of those time card machines on the console of the machine. There was no clock in the machine. When your job, you started your job, you punched it. Was, it was kind of like a chess tournament, you know. You punched in, and then when your job finished, you punched out, and then they use this to calculate by hand how much they're gonna charge you. Well, we were running on our operating system, our basically newborn operating system, we're running 30 jobs at a time. And many of them, they would try to punch them by the printer would print out a line and they'd say, Okay, we're finished, and they'd stick the next one. Many of them, there was no difference between the start time and the end time and they couldn't charge people so they forbid us from testing our operating system. That was the East Coast people. All right, it was also the East Coast people who came out and, and eventually broke up our group when we sold a big job of programming because they didn't want to be in the programming business. All right? And they said it very clearly. It was also the East Coast people when we had uh, a few years after that, we decided that programming was getting to be a big deal at IBM. We would get a bunch of programmers together in one place, uh, and I think it was 61, I think, the Bald P conference, you can look that up, we went to this country club up in New England. And uh, first thing they discovered, there were a lot more programmers in IBM than they thought. And then they said, oh, this is a disaster. We and so the sales executives took over the conference and tried to direct programming to be something that it wasn't. These were the East again, the East Coast people. So I mean it was really deeply embedded in. And I have an image which uh I'll stick with me forever. Uh, there was a break, and I go to the men's room and I'm standing at the urinal. And on my left side is one of these IBM executives, and you could tell them because they were all in suits and ties. And, and on my right is another executive, and we're all standing at the urinal doing our business. And one of them, we just come out of this big meeting with a lot of contention. And he says, well, I guess one thing is at least it couldn't get any worse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, guys said, i terrible. And the other guy said, you couldn't get any worse. And I just... I just said to them, Alan, you have no idea how it's going to get, I mean they have. No, they were thinking they were going to eliminate programming, the IBM 360 was sold to the executives, they didn't want to release these machines, it was a new design, Fred Works and his team had designed, I had worked on the program, program structure, and so, uh, but they were sold after like three false attempts, they were sold on releasing this. Because you would write programs once and for all, and they would work on all the machines, and there were no more programming anymore. Can you believe this? I
0: mean, yeah, that's incredible that, to be so wrong. Uh.
1: <laughs> and, you know, uh, so they, they had no vision of what it would involve. Eventually now, and I don't know if it's still true at IBM, but now IBM makes more money from software than it does from hardware. And software and services. So uh, I mean, we could see this coming, but we couldn't convince it. The West Coast people always seem to understand that, and they're largely separated. You know, but these few collisions that we had, you could see this this difference. And I guess that's what you know. I mean, I learned from my wife, as the anthropologist. Culture is like that; it's very conservative. Um, and so these images have stayed. And of course, you could understand why these managers, it would certainly be convenient if there were, you didn't have to test programs. It would be convenient if you write a program once and it lasts for a thousand years, right? Wouldn't that be great? I guess.
0: Yeah, there's, there's something that I've always wondered too about the, um, the uh, I guess you could say, the immateriality of code and writing more generally. So for example, it seems like there's a certain type of perhaps conservative mindset that, um, gets very excited about building ships, uh, or building buildings and is totally uninterested in, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, books or, uh, code Mm -hmm. or other, or, you know, even logic or, or things like that. Um, and, It seems like it's almost like, you know, my brother and I have a joke that you can divide people up into two types of people in infinite number of
2: ways. (laughs) Uh,
0: And there are some people who are just totally unexcited by things they can't touch Mm -hmm. uh, and don't feel like it represents a real accomplishment if you've done something that can't be touched. And so I remember, for example, uh, when I was in university in the mid 90s um, and, you know, the Internet was becoming a thing. Um, I was studying English literature and, you know, there was always a pressure not to give money to the English department. Mm -hmm. Um, But when all of a sudden you could say, well, we can make a website and it's going to be on a computer and there's going to be blinking lights and shit. um, You know, all of a sudden people became interested in giving the English department money uh, because there could actually be a kind of tangible outcome, even though it's kind of ironic in the circumstance that it was, you know, a computer-based outcome. Um, do, you see, do you see this general sort of thing that we're discussing, uh, kind of like you know, there's, there's the two cultures aspect to their approach to programming and computing work. Do you see it changing at all?
1: No. Except we're, we are changing in the, in the following way. Um, experiential learning, see, is based on the idea that Learning is not a pure intellectual thing. It's not like pouring bits from my brain into your brain. Uh, you know, people can get their hands on something and do something with the ideas that you have that anchors them in them in a way that, you know, lecturing to them maybe doesn't do. So, uh, and probably, I uh, as a guess based on some personality testing. Probably three-quarters of the general population is more on the physical side of things, right? Uh, so, yes, yeah, some of us were, you know, work with our minds, and that was very real to us. But it's hard to imagine what it's like for somebody, for us to imagine what it's like for somebody who doesn't see these things as real, They are very real to us, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very well put
1: you know so uh, so we've managed in our training to reach a lot of the those people uh, effectively uh, we see uh, you know if we, if we get a, if we get a sampling of the people in software for example and, uh, and we test their personalities and so on. And even though the general population is three quarters to one quarter one way, the population we get is, probably the reverse, right? yeah. and, and, but not everybody is like us, and that's, that's the first thing to learn. And a lot of people just don't get that. Not, I mean, it's even deeper principle. Not everybody is alike. Bertrand Russell once said that there's two things that motivate people in their lives. Two ideas. One is they want to be just like everybody else. And the other is they want to be unique. <laughs> <laughs> right? He was a smart guy, worker, Russell. I and mean, it's true. And you see that, right? I mean, like, when we grew up as kids, you know, and you skipped grade, you got put in the back of the room, I got put in a separate room. We wanted to be with the, like the other kids, but and there's a part of us that said, yeah, it's great. I'm special. Right? So both of those things are working at the same time. But a lot of people just never get the idea that other people are different. Managers who manage, they say, do this, and they think that's done. They, they think all you have to do is tell somebody to do something, and that's and, and what managing is about. Um, it's, the same, it's the same business. So you know, we, what we have done in our work is try to take into account that people are different, you can approach them in different ways. I think anybody who isn't brain damaged could learn to write programs.
0: Um, This actually, I think this might be a good opportunity for me to ask you um, a question about. uh, I mean, you've written you've written about the the Fieldstone method uh, for writing. And there's just coincidentally, just before this interview, I was interviewing Ben Kelly in London, who I believe you've met. and uh, I asked him if I'm, I told him I'm going to be I'm going to be interviewing Jerry Weinberg in an hour. Um, if what question would you like me to ask him that you think people would be interested in hearing? And you have a very visual example of dry stone and, and physical example of, of dry stone wall construction that you use to talk about how you do writing. But Ben wanted me to ask if you about any connection you see between that and building software.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's not exactly the same because the writing we're talking. Well, again, there's two kinds of writing, right? You you can divide divide, writing into two. But it's um, one is where you you're just trying to entertain. I shouldn't say just trying to entertain. Entertaining is difficult, right? But uh, you just you want to have something that's interesting and keeps people involved. They're on summer holiday and they're at the beach and reading and they just want to feel good. And enjoy it. Uh, you can write just about anything, right? And so there, you want to gather. Certainly, want to gather fieldstones of what is interesting, right? Uh, make up stuff that's interesting. When you're writing a computer program, if you're writing a game, that's exactly what you're doing. You're going to put a lot of interesting stuff together with an idea of what's the central idea of the game, but you're building it around that. So that the characters in the game are interesting, the different actions they have are interesting and so on. So there the fieldstone method seems clearly applicable. Now, if she was writing a payroll program for somebody to do all the taxes and so on, uh, well, you have stones, but it's more like working with bricks than, than field stones, where you know what has to be in there because there's this, this law about the taxes and this law about withholding and so on and so forth. Uh, so I, um, that, of course, I've never found that to be as interesting, but it's still challenging, and there's a lot of different ways to do stuff. Uh, so I don't know. It's an interesting question. I haven't really thought it out. to work on that question. Uh, you can tell them the answer is it depends. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, thanks for that answer. And yeah, I should say that the, the Fieldstone method, I, I read a little bit of your book um, about about writing uh, using that method, and it's it's really fascinating. So there's this uh, way of building building walls and other structures where you go out into the fields and you and you you find stones, and then you can shape them. Uh, and sometimes it might occur to you, you know, that uh, a stone you didn't have a place for belongs somewhere um, as you as you're building something, and a stone you maybe thought belonged in one place could belong somewhere else. Is it is is that is that along the lines of what you're what you're getting at with that method?
1: Yeah, I mean, see, um, the way that book came about is interesting. I think you know who James Bach is, right? Uh, testing guy. I don't know if he's got any uh, books in the pump or not, but he's anyway. James, or James is one of the preeminent. You ought to try to get him to give you a book. Anyway, he had he was a student of mine. He's also his father is a famous writer who um, Wrote um, a, a number of uh, best, really big, best-selling books, and James had um, a publisher. I think it might have been Prentice Hall, but I'm not sure about the exact. Had uh, given him a, a $30,000 advance to write a book on testing. Wow. Now you, guys, you guys, you know what that's like. I mean, you don't, you don't do that, no. and uh, almost nobody ever does that. And I think part of that was because they knew his father was a famous writer who had made millions writing books. So, they, Well, he's the son. I mean, that really astonished me to hear that. Well, he uh, took the money, spent it, and couldn't write the book. And he came to our, our seminars, and, and he was saying it's a big problem for him. You know, he feels under obligation to these people. So I So um, I had a consultation with him. He came out here to New Mexico in my living room and uh, we sat down, spent a couple days, and he asked me to help him write books. I said, Well, I'll explain to you how I write books. And I described the Fieldstone method, which I had, um, I don't know, I had never thought about it as a method, just what I did. So I was thinking of a metaphor, and I said, Well, it's like building a field stone wall, which I had done some work building field stone walls. And I said, It's like building. And he said, What's a field stone? You know, he didn't know what that was. So I had to explain to him what a field stone was and how you gather lots of stones, more than you're going to need, and you're always looking for interesting stones. Even if you don't have a specific project in mind, and then you eventually you have a project and you look at your pile of stones and you start picking them out and this one fits here, know that one doesn't. No. Ideally you, you you hardly ever modify any of them. But you might have sometimes to just get a little fit and you build things. and you have lots of leftover stones that you don't use, but that's you have these beautiful walls. And we went through all that, and it just totally blew his mind. He had never, because he had watched his father write books all his life, and that's not the way his father did it. And so he then successfully wrote his first book using the method. And he said, You should write this. And it never occurred to me that I should write this down. Well, that's happened to me. You asked me before, when I never really answered, How did you get inspired? To write the psychology of computer programming. Uh, it was a, something very similar. People ask me, well, how do you actually write programs? You know, how, how do you what mine do? I do? And, I, and I explained to them. They said, Oh, you ought to write this down. Yeah. Oh. Oh no, okay. And I wrote them and did experiments and so on. Same thing with the secrets of consulting. And one day I had three calls from associates of mine who were consultants asking me questions about consulting like how do you decide how much to charge people or uh, you know which assignments to take and after going through the third one I was talking to this woman i would known for many years and she said that was very useful Uh, have you written this down anywhere no (laughs) okay so in some sense I'm not really a writer you see I'm more of a consultant than a teacher and I'm more of a consultant than a teacher. I I help people solve problems and then I work backwards and I go, Oh, well, maybe other people have similar problems. So I'll write this down. Or I'll teach this and then I'll write this down. Does that make any sense to you? It's-
0: it it does. It does. Um although uh I, I I might wanna I I had a question I wanted to ask you that's rather rather topical, um and it was, you know, because although although often your writing may be maybe pulled out of you by other people's realizing that you've got something to say uh I think you're still I think it's still safe to say you're a writer um and uh you uh, everyone in the United States is experiencing experiencing an interesting moment right now, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that even though it's very topical um just the other day, I found a tweet that you wrote um after it was announced that the CDC had been banned from using some words in its 2018 budget documents. And you wrote those words and then you wrote there, I wrote them. I'm a writer. I burn at the idea of thought control. I hope you do too. (laughs) Um,
1: and I I was just, sorry. I got a lot of positive response to that.
0: Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, you've, you've seen a lot of change, uh, in your country. Um, do you think that this present moment is showing us, you know, signs of that are good? That when, you know, the ship of history seems to be turning in a direction that people don't want to see it go, they they try and right the ship. Is that what you see happening now?
1: Oh, yes. It's, there's certainly. Uh, <clears throat> You know, when you look at it from a historical point of view many years from now, what's going on in the U.S. now, if we survive, if we don't blow up the whole world, which is a possibility, uh, could be seen as a turning point in history. uh, Because this was happening in the U.S. with the previous election, and the president we had uh, Put a lot of people into action. This is the kind of guy kind of drifting along, <clears throat> but you know George Orwell wrote 1984 exactly about Newspeak and how, trying to control the words that people use and inventing new words. It's just what's happening in the U.S. now, like the you know the whole idea about uh, fake news is a term that was invented to try to discredit the, the news media. trying to do that. It's also uh, exactly what Hitler did in the 30s, um, try to control what people said and what, and what, and then what they think, and so on. And then, and there was resistance to that. It's cost a lot of people their lives and a lot of costs and so on. And we're seeing that building up now. now whether we're successful at defeating this or whether we're going to go into a, a sort of a Nazi area era. You know, we don't know how it's going to come out, but we're, a lot of us, are, a lot of people are working against it, <clears throat> and we need, I think, to raise human consciousness to so that this kind of thing goes on all the time. And it goes on in a very interesting example, which I will write up at some point. Back in the early days of computing, when we tie these two topics together, mm-hmm. um, IBM, IBM <clears throat> And they finally realized, well, we're going to have all this programming, but at least we ought to get it standardized. Like you can make all programs the same. Right. <clears throat> that's, that's the again, that thought, yeah. right? And um, so they got together, four of us, who were considered, I guess, the best programmers in IBM, or at least maybe, I don't know, maybe we were thought to be the most manipulable, I don't know, I'm not sure. And we got together from different parts of the country, we met at the airport in Chicago, stayed at the airport hotel for three days, and drew up a set of programming standards for IBM. This is all for assembly language, right? And uh, we got on pretty well, we had a lot in common, so at one point we had a real sticking point. In those days, there was a big uh, argument going on about commenting of code. Mm-hmm. and one school thought every line of code should be commented. So if you're adding, if you're adding one to a variable, you had a comment that said "add one to the variable." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, to me, it was ridiculous. And you know, there was this other school, and now that you mentioned it, it might have been three quarters, one quarter. And the other school thought, no, the program should explain itself as you go through it. Maybe you have a comment at the beginning, saying this is what this routine is supposed to do. But the comments were a big problem. I mean, they wouldn't be updated, and then the comment wouldn't say what it was really doing, or they were, and it didn't matter what the comment said, the code did whatever it did, right? And so this created problems in testing. So I was in the school where no line should be commented. And the other three guys, and this was your three quarters again, said every line should be commented. And we hassled this for a whole day. And finally, to get things moving again, we made a compromise, sort of, and the standard was that three-quarters of the lines of code should be commented, all right, oh, ridiculous. it was a ridiculous compromise. <clears throat> but that was made a standard. And then, of course, somebody, somewhere in IBM, modified the IBM assembler. So that if three quarters of the lines were not commented, it wouldn't assemble your program.
2: Oh
1: my God! Exactly. So then the next reaction was the programmers in uh, assembly. I don't know if you're familiar with the assembly language for the 360, but the way you make a comment is you have a space after the address field, and and then everything after that is a comment. So programmers would to get through this assembler would. Mega space and an asterisk after every line. So the comment was an asterisk, but the the, the assembler didn't know any better. And that was fine. And this went on for some months until somebody finally figured out how ridiculous this was. And they killed this feature in the assembler. And in reviewing code over the years from those days, you could always tell what was written in that three-month period because it had all these asterisks. There. All right, so this was the, the populace fighting back against these ridiculous rules. Well, it's the same dynamic that you see with this with this thing about forbidding certain words. I'm sure somebody in the government will make a word processor modification that says if you have one of these words in your budget, well, we're, we, will, we won't allow you to print it, right? And then the writers will work around it with alternate ways of saying the same thing. And so, you know, I mean, this, but this is something really deep in human behavior. It's been going on probably for thousands of years and we keep, it, you know, it goes on and on. I don't think it will ever stop.
0: Yeah, I've got a, my next question was, was on that subject. Um, uh, so one of the things that people have been taking to say when they view what's happening, for example, with, you know, the potential manipulation of, of people's thoughts through, you know, content that's represented as news or served up to them by algorithms in their, you know, Facebook timelines or whatever they're called. Um, uh, one position that people are taking, particularly for some reason, the New York times op-ed writers seem to take like this idea that it's the computers that are to blame. Um, you know. And I just wanted to ask you, as someone who's spent you know, a, a career and a sort of intellectual life interested in, in computing from you know, the beginnings um, and in also in you know, psychology, I'm going to say slash anthropology, uh, what's, what's your take on that? If someone were to say to you, it was Facebook's fault.
1: Well, you know, the, the NRA in the United States, the National Rifle Association, their slogan is one of their slogans: "is Guns don't kill people, people kill people. Software doesn't kill people. Hardware doesn't kill people. People kill people. All right, Pe- people. We make this stuff. Just because we make it doesn't mean we understand it. Huh? But if it does things, it's what we. I mean, to me, in all my work with computers over the years." I think that's the best thing computers ever did for me, was teach me that I, I wasn't perfect, I couldn't be perfect, and then I do a lot of dumb things, and the computer just mirrors them back to me. If I write a program it's just something dumb, I get what I put in, and my first instinct, the first second is, oh, the computer is doing this bad thing, but I learned that it's not the machine. You know, it's like you look in the mirror and you say, oh, look at this ugly person. That's mirror is something wrong with the mirror, I don't think so. That's a I mean, image. there are mirrors like that, but uh, <laughs> that's not what the computers are. And yes, we've had machine errors from time to time, and they've caused some trouble. But <clears throat> in the old days, this is another difference between then and now. <clears throat> if something went wrong on the computer, we wrote a program, put it in to one of the tube machines, 50% of the time it was a machine error, and 50% of the time it was a program error. Then the transistors came along, this ratio changed very strongly, Uh uh, and the machines did not make that many mistakes, they still did occasionally, and when they did it was actually interesting, it was harder to find them because we didn't have experience finding machine errors in those early days. With relay machines and tube machines, you run a program. You had to know the machine architecture. You had to know how to find machine errors (laughs) because otherwise, you know, half your trouble you couldn't deal with. And this has gone away now, right? Most programmers have no idea about machine architecture. And and they're totally immobilized. If there is a hardware error, they just don't know what to do.
0: Yeah, back in the day, bugs were literal bugs.
1: Yes, I've had some of those that actually crawled into the machine, you know, prep fried or whatever. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. Well, thanks for that answer. I particularly like that that image about um you know of someone looking in the mirror and not liking what they see and blaming blaming the the device as it were uh, for you know the reality. Um, so this has been a nearly feature length talk already. Uh, I wanted to. Uh, Thank you for that. I've had a really good time. Um, We have a convention on this podcast uh, where the last question I ask is, um, if you can think of anything, if there were one thing we could build for you on LeanPub or one thing we could fix for you, what would that one thing be?
1: On LeanPub? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I have to say... And by and large, I, I, one of the, the basic reason I'm doing my stuff on LeanPub is that I really like it. I really like what you've done. Um, and, uh, you know, generally when I want something, I look and it's there. In other words, you sort of understand me from a point of view of what I need as a writer. Um, and I see all these uh, notes that you know, somebody wants. somewhere I some particular Chinese typeface that you don't happen to be supporting. And I mean, well, okay, I guess that's important to them. But that's that kind of stuff you all taken care of as far as I'm concerned. I'm not writing in Chinese, you know, and, and all, all these details and so So the, the basic idea, and I hope, I guess, it's not so much what I want you to change, it's what I want you to not change. Okay. your original idea, I remember reading this and, is you wanna make it really accessible to writers so that there's not a big barrier to entry. If, if I got something to write and I haven't written before, I want it to be easy to get into it and get it up there, get it out in the world and then what I really like is that uh, I, can, I can put up and I'm experimenting with that now more and more. I can put up something that well, it's not finished. I mean, like, um, I'm, because because of the fieldstone method. I mean, I'm doing many projects at the same time, and I may not have the fieldstone I need at the moment, but it might be that's one thing. Uh, that a book that would still be valuable to people without that one part. I remember when I was being an editor for uh, uh, one of the Prentice Hall subsidiaries, and we had a book. On a compiler writing. It was a wonderful book. Wonderful. We had the manuscript, but he had a last chapter he wanted to write on optimization. Code, optim- well, code optimization has been a subject for a long, long time, and it's not a closed subject. And he wouldn't let the book be published because he hadn't finished this chapter. And he'd be ready to publish, and then he'd get a new idea from somewhere. And he said, Well, no, And years went by when this book was not available to people because he didn't have this one piece. And he never published it, as far as I know. I've lost track now. Uh, See, if I have something like that, I've got 85% of the book, and I think it's valuable to people. I can put it up on LeanPub, and I can say to people, look, I want another section on this, but I'm not ready to write it, or I'm not sure what else goes here. But you'll be notified by LeanPub. You buy it. And I'm going to modify it sometime in the future. You will be notified, right? Nobody else does that, you know. I so. So people will say to me, "Well, why?" So I have a number of books on Leanpub that I don't have on uh, Kindle, for example, which is the big marketplace for books. Right? And I won't put them on Kindle uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I can't, if I want to incrementally improve the book. People won't know that. They'll buy the book and I'll modify it, but they'll never hear about it, right? If I do that on LeanPub, they'll, they'll come and make for nothing, they can get the the, the modification. And uh, the other another thing that I like about LeanPub is if I want to charge more than $9.99 for a book, I can do that without paying a huge penalty, right? So there's just a lot of things. I just mentioned a few things, but a lot of things that you guys have done right from the beginning, really. And uh, I think, you know, uh, I don't want you to change that. I don't want you to make it more too complicated. Uh, you get all these special requests and so on. And, uh, you know, there's this term that people use called requirements creep. Right. You know the term? Yeah. And I see that's a danger for you now. You know, I mean, you want to satisfy everybody. You won't be able to do that. Uh, the thing will get—it's like Word, Microsoft Word. I hate it as a word processor because it's got all these so-called features. And if I happen to bump my elbow on the keyboard, some feature comes up. If I don't know what it is and I don't know how to get out of it, and I, you know, I don't know. so by and large, lean pub is could also be called clean pub. <laughs> how about that that's
2: good
1: if you have the C maybe people may think you're restricting it to C programs or something <laughs> uh, so, so I guess that's my answer to you I mean I'll write to you if I think of something but I don't want to pester you with little little glitches and little things
0: yeah well thanks very much for that feedback that's um, very much very much appreciated um uh yeah, in particular, I just wanted the one thing I wanted to say was that um, one of the reasons LeanPub has been so attractive to technical book authors is that uh, charging more than nine ninety nine issue that you mentioned, where Amazon uh, has its royalty structure set up to discourage books being sold for more than nine ninety nine, and obviously a lot of technical books yeah. uh, have a natural price point higher than that. Um, And so uh, coupled with, you know, variable pricing, um, you know, that makes that makes, you know, our approach pretty attractive, in particular to technical book authors. Um, Well, Jerry, uh, we were uh, very excited when you popped up on LeanPub. Um, We've been very excited to have you with us for all these years. And I was very excited to talk to you today. And I really enjoyed uh, our conversation. Um,
1: I did, too, by the way, a lot.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and so, I guess I'll, I guess I'll let you go and uh, keep your voice. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>
2: Thanks. Thank you.
1: Thanks for asking me to do this. This was great. Oh yeah, it was
2: an absolute absolute pleasure.